Maybe the Dutch attitude is that no one is really special, that anybody can give their opinion on anything. Is different to the to the German one, which we respect hierarchy and you know, up and down. Trust your muse. The podcast exploring new ways of working. Hi, and thank you for listening to my podcast, Trust Your Muse. I am Sarah, and my guest this episode is Robert De Bruyne. He is a senior lecturer at the University of Applied Science, Utrecht. He's an independent author and a startup founder. And let me share a secret. It's because of Robert that the podcast is called Trust Your Muse. After our interview, we kept in touch and in a mail from January 2020, he wrote, trust your own muse. Let me tell you, the name search was quite a hustle. So I decided to go along with trust your muse. Robert has a big part in this journey and the story behind how we met is quite funny because if you've listened to the episodes before, you know that I attended this meetup from Oliver Wolf's. They renamed themselves and are called Energy Flow now. I was very indecisive if I should go or not because Papentracht, if you Google it, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. And a train ride would have taken me a long time and would have cost me a fortune. Then I had an idea by asking in the meetup group if someone is driving. And Robert was the one saying, yeah, of course, I'm driving from Utrecht, so I can give you a ride. That is how I got to know Robert. And I met him again in Den Haag sometime after the meetup, where we intended to record the podcast episode. And we ended up talking so much and forgetting about recording, actually. This episode is full of knowledge. We talk about a lot of topics. Be aware, it's gonna be very informative. Robert shares a lot of research findings and I was so fascinated about all his knowledge and I felt like I could ask everything and He has an answer or an idea or a smart thought. So as I was researching on innovative organizations or new ways of working, the buzzword agile or agility was one of our topics. How to work agile? What does that mean? We talked about the importance of learning and I learned something that is called a reflective practice or reflective cycles. We talk about holacracy and our what we learn from the meetup and then we tackle the big big topic of leadership and management and then talk about organizational structures and way more. So be prepared for a session with us which feel like a student again with the curious mindset and ears and Robert helped me as well with my research question what might be the differences between the Dutch way of working and the German way of working and um, why they seem more progressive to me in the Netherlands than in Germany I hope you enjoy you will enjoy 
this podcast episode as much as I enjoyed talking to Robert. If you have questions, please reach out to us and have fun now listening and learning. We are sitting here at, I never can pronounce it, so you have to help me. Hogeschool. Hogeschule. Hogeschool. Hogeschool. Hogeschool Utrecht. Yeah. And it looks very fancy. So, um, Robert, what do you do here? I'm a lecturer in the International Business Studies Institute mm -hmm. uh, and the program International Business Studies of the same name for in, within the institute. It's a bachelor program. And I'm a lecturer on strategic marketing, uh, entrepreneurship, um, and those areas. I do a lot of design of the program as well, plus obviously teaching and coaching students. I've read on your LinkedIn uh, the, the buzzwords, hmm? <laughs> lean startup and agility. Why those areas? Um, why those areas? Well, when I came to the HU, mm. um, so Hochschool, I had just um, wrapped up or bungled a startup when it was in, in its early days when those um, methodologies were um, really coming to the mainstream or coming to the fore and concretizing. And um, I started to implement those methodologies when there was a course here on entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. but they were writing a business plan. Mm -hmm. And I was asked to take that on to, to coordinate it. And I said, that's fine, but I'm not going to have students write a business plan. So then I brought in the Lean Startup methodologies. Mm -hmm. One, because it's a better, smarter way to investigate whether there's ideas for um, an idea, whether it can be a business. And it's a more practical way than write a business plan. Uh, the agility uh, came in because at the same time, at around that time, because Lean Startup was getting more popular and going mainstream, large organizations were starting to perk up and look at that and adopt it. But I had a question in my mind of um, when you take the lean startup methodologies and way of working, how does that work in a big organization, which processes generally are diametrically opposed to that kind of way of working. So I was really curious, okay, so if all these companies are going to adopt this wholeheartedly, what happens when they do? Mm -hmm. And after many years of reading and investigating it, I really came down to the point of agility. I was like, okay, if you want to do this in an organization, you need to have a certain way of working, not just injecting a little mm -hmm. flavor of Lean Startup. Which is happening a lot, apparently, right? So I feel like it's just an observation um, from organizations in Germany that agility is the buzzword and um, yeah. we introduced, or we work agile, we are agile, um, It's, it's just like what you said, like introducing yeah. parts of it. And, or what is your definition or understanding of agility, of, of this big word? There's a concept of the ambidextrous organization, which yes. has been out for quite a long time. Yes. That's also been fleshed out in many more uh, authors and studies about, well, how do you get innovation done? Mm -hmm. The idea is that you would have one part of the organization, either you call it exploit, so exploit your existing, some other people call it the franchise, keep your franchise business going, which is the normal business administration. And you have the other part of the organization, which is explore or innovate. The point would be agility is, yeah, visually that doesn't work. <laughs> two hands yeah, in two front hands. of us. Yeah. So making those things work together 
in a way, is part of agility. Mm-hmm. That doesn't always apparently go very well with organizations, especially when you think of what form of innovation is required. But agility is maybe not only how to innovate, it's also simply to adapt your organization as you go around, even if it's not to innovate, which might require a different kind of structure or ability. So when it comes down to the nuts and bolts, when companies say we do agile, agile versus agility is a way of having teams focused on a specific goal and working in short sprints Mm -hmm. at the simplest. And if the entire organization works in that, they might be, the organization might be agile or have agility because they can adapt by taking advantage of opportunities or risks responding through small teams. There's many different forms of agility. If you look at different companies, um, you try and identify, there have been authors that have identified um, patterns or things that they say are the hallmarks of an agile organization. Gary Hamill of what is one of them. Stephen Denning is another one. You know, people have been looking at this a long time and trying to describe this beast. All of them describe it. <laughs> describe yeah. the beast. <laughs> they don't all describe it in the terms of an ambidextrous organization. Mm. They describe it as a, ter- as, a, as a mindset of experimentation. Okay, mindset of experimentation. So part of the agility of the experimentation is that they found is also making sure that it comes from the bottom up, mm-hmm. enabling employees to band together and take opportunities. But one thing obviously that stops employees from doing that is the resources to do so, being freed from their jobs, mm-hmm. and the risk of to their careers if it fails. So agility, there's a number of findings that are related to what is stopping the ability to more rapidly take advantage of opportunities and suggestions of what is required to actually enable people within an organization to do that, let alone the mindset and the capabilities of the people themselves. Mm. Very interesting. And um, you said something when we met the first time, the sentence, um, or this, the Silicon Valley, how do you call it, mantra, fail fast, um, fail often and you turn it around highlighting the aspect of learning so uh, All right. yeah well learn fast, <laughs> yeah. learn fast. <laughs> it's what the mantra actually means mm-hmm. but i believe a lot of people have um forgotten what it actually meant and and assumed that it's good to crash a startup that therefore you learn um the only thing you learn from failing is what not to do not what to do the spirit of that that uh, thing was not to crash a startup, but to make sure that you learn in very small cycles of what should you not do, therefore what should you do, so that you would iterate your way to success, not to fail the startup. And sometimes it seems these days when you hear this being said by people, it's it being pride of I messed up a startup, which wasn't what it was intended. It was to learn fast and learn often in the shortest possible cycle, which comes back to whether you want to call it scrum lean startup, design thinking, all has the same basis of understand what your assumptions are, test your assumptions and learn from them so that you don't fail. So it's more emphasizing that the mantra might have gotten lost on a lot of people and that its actual intent is to learn fast and that by doing, not by doing long-term planning, business plans, which is why I said when I came to teach here, I threw out a business plan project for entrepreneurship in favor of a lean startup approach, which is learn fast, learn often. 
by making assumptions explicit, making them testable, and learning as fast as possible whether you're right or wrong, and if you're going in the right, right direction, which is the same thing that Agile Scrum does in its own way. So the fail fast, fail often, it's right, as long as you understand that failure does not mean crash. They started. That's not what its aim was. Yeah. And you also um, use different methods um, to learn together with your students. Um, you mentioned the reflective practice, which I found very, very interesting also in terms of learning. Can you tell a bit more about that? Well, one of the biggest things going forward um, with 21st century skills is one, the ability to lifelong learning, although is that a skill? It's the ability to learn, which means somehow people need to get into a habit of learning to learn. Rather than calling just lifelong learning, learn to learn. And reflective practice has been used in actually more in nursing uh, areas, okay. has developed there, and less in other places. For example, business seldom actually includes that. But the reflective practice is again a short cycle of thinking about events or personal goals and how are you progressing on those goals to reflect on what happened. How could I look at this? Could anybody else look at this in a different view? And what will I do in the future to improve or maximize my performance, my collaboration, whatever it might be? That's again a learn fast, learn often. If you make a reflective cycle six months, there's very little that's going to be learned because you're reflecting over six months. So if you can make a reflective cycle every week or even every day with some feedback, you've got a chance for learning how to learn which is also how do I engage with material, how do I apply material, how do I work with other people. There's many factors when their ex students are experiencing, we throw a lot at them. <laughs> yeah, I bet, yeah. So there's a lot of stuff that mm. they're coping with. Reflective practice in that way is a way to assimilate that and saying, what am I doing with this stuff? And the faster we can get that into a short cycle of learning, the better that, the deeper that their learning might be like, ah, this is how this makes sense. This is what I can do with this. And this is how I can improve myself going forward. And how do you apply it now? So is it like a, a weekly thing that you do with them, like reminding them, hey students, have you done your reflective practice? Or is it um, a tool or a booklet or how? We're currently using WordPress, mm -hmm. private WordPress blogs. Mm -hmm. uh, blogs. <laughs> so the students must set up their own blog. We yeah. give them instructions on how to do it, which is for some students also, already yeah. an opening, eye-opening. Oh, there you know, some technology. Uh, we make them have it private because they might well be discussing you know, some things that are, thing, that are a little bit uh, yeah, sensitive, vulnerable. We do require them to invite uh, three peers that they trust. Out of the out of their students? Class. Yeah. Okay. yeah, out of the mm -hmm. class. And they must invite the lecturers or the coaches as well. Mm -hmm. Then we have certain goals for the students to be writing every day for 15 minutes. We say it's not about writing a long, long piece, but just make a habit of writing. And as you get better at this, it will go. Now, we set that goal. That doesn't mean that they're all doing it. Some of them take to it very well, and they're really getting bang of it. And some of them, indeed, what you say, we have to say, come over here. You haven't written anything this week. Remember, you are going to have an assessment on this at the end. The peers are there to maybe give them a, hey, have you thought about this? The exact same thing which the teachers the coaches are doing, invited in, 
to nudge them into a little bit deeper reflection. Mm -hmm. So that's the challenge of getting them to have a habit of writing and think about what's happening, how do I interpret it, how do I feel about it, what do I do with it, and how do I change to improve performance. I would have loved to have that in my studies <laughs> and uh, in my um, yeah work life. <laughs> do you see companies adapting this reflection time um, there is obviously a growing issue within learning development of HR functions of how do you get people to improve. So it might be in the future something that is there um, working. Uh, but so far, as far as I know, reflective practice is mainly only actually practiced in nursing or other professions like that. Um, not yet in mm. regular business uh, companies. Um, who knows, that might change as people, uh, for the learning to learn and lifelong learning, it might be an issue for going going forward. Except for Google did have, years ago, a, a platform where they asked people to write notes about their progress. So they used assistance of objectives and key results, mm -hmm. where employees would every day write about their objectives and key results, and that would be public but that's not a reflective cycle it's saying okay what are my objectives how am I getting along with meeting my targets mm. my self-set targets there's this thing we've talked about the working out loud mm. yeah um, which is what I learned from you that's yeah. why I said I, I wasn't <laughs> gonna bring that in but you have a need show me that something on reflection is being done in companies yeah. yes and that's uh, what you said that the companies give the time for people to invest in their personal development where in the end the company can also, you know, benefit from. Yep. Um, but it's an hour a week. Yeah. So, um, and this is something. Yeah. Clayton Christensen has an interesting research. He's the person who he's the, uh, the the scholar who came up with a disruptive innovation. Mm -hmm. um, he's got one interesting article which says the uh, the the abilities and disabilities for managing disruptive change. And his research found that there was three things that enabled or disenabled companies to deal with disruptive change. That was the resources, the processes, and the values. The values being not, we love the planet, but the, the, the values by which you make decisions on what to invest in or not. So that comes down to financial, like internal rate of return mm -hmm. and net present uh, value and those kind of things. The, re the processes are how well defined are your processes. Now, the more mature a company is, the more defined its process should be. This is how things work both the official or the, 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 the official ones and the unofficial process and the resources obviously the capabilities of your people now startups all the capabilities are in the people because there's no real processes and they haven't yet figured out which way they financially they decide what to invest in so they can move and adapt very quickly as a company matures it goes its its capabilities move more into the other issues now coming back to the issue of space for effective practice for a company where everything is moved into the values, the capabilities for managing or uh, disruptive change, the case for giving people time to reflect is hard to make, a financial case. Mm -hmm. So that might stop certain companies in like, yes, well, what are we gonna benefit from this? Where's the net present value of letting people go spend an hour per week or 15 minutes per day mm -hmm. of doing this? Why don't they work productively. So those are interesting. I find that a very interesting insight 
because it's very powerful to look at companies and say, well, where are your capabilities and do you understand where they are and what's stopping you from enabling change? And in terms of uh, the, do you remember the sentence uh, we've, yeah, we're given at the meetup uh, of Oliver Wolves with, um, which was, uh, you know, the people um, are not the profit, or what was it? Uh, um, people, are, people are not the, a part of the cost, they're part of the profit. profit. Yeah. So does it, is this kind of what goes into that, which is a mindset well, shift? Yeah. Or like a, this power shift they were talking about? Does it, yeah. is that what do you mean? I think, yeah, that I hadn't made that connection, but I think that's a good one. It's a thinking about your employees, not as a cost, but as a value added. Um, which means also enabling them to create more value. And if that's something that they need to do reflective practice or other other ways of learning to learn, then that is a mindset. Employees are a cost or they're part of your profit formula. And most management looks at the cost because as at Oliver Velves, they said, here's the balance sheet. This is where, the, where, where employees come. Salaries are on the cost before profits and therefore... Yeah, we we just talked about um, the holacracy framework and using it in also in the salary discussion. And um, I was talking to Charlotte uh, from uh, Oliver Valves, who is in charge of HR. And um, this this energy discussion. So you contribute. So it's it's a contribution of your purpose, you know, yeah. and contribution of your energy. And it's also. Um, it goes into your salary discussion mm. as yeah. a second layer of how they do their salary scale. I was like, okay, how do you measure that? You know, yeah. what is it's very interesting in this holacracy framework and uh, people take roles and they decide what they want to contribute to the company and certain things are valued. Yeah. And how? What is your experience with um, holacracy as a tool, as a framework, um, and uh, in in terms of this self? Um, organization, self-management? Well, I didn't have much experience with Holacracy except for reading the book mm -hmm. before. That was a good number of years ago. So this was the first company I'd looked at as close, which was Holacracy, which was a, which were what attracted me to the meetup to get an inside look. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I found the most interesting or powerful that I remember from, uh, one of the people said, um, and he said it in Dutch, so I'll, uh, I'll, I'll say it in Dutch and then I'll try to translate. Normally people say, uh, put, put people in, uh, in, in a krachtsetter, so put them in their strength. And they didn't say that. They said, put people in their authority. I thought that was an interesting shift as well. The people in their roles could speak from their authority and that was means it needed to be respected, which mm -hmm. means it gave them a good set of rules to play by everyone mm -hmm. so that they could be confident in this is my authority to mm. say and do something about. Yeah, you have a responsibility yeah. in your role and in the task within your role. And it's clear, and yeah. it's clear to everyone. Yeah. So in the self-management, I mm. thought that was interesting. People can choose their roles, mm. what you want to contribute to, and well, the self-steering, self-organizing. And then from that role, it is expected within the organization, so everyone, since everyone understands the rules by which they play by, that that is something that is within that person's domain to move on. Mm. So I thought that was a very interesting exhibition of the yep. self-management compared to other organizations which don't use holacracy. Mm -hmm. um, W.O. Gore is 
uh, an interesting uh, W.L. Gore and Associates is an interesting company, which is one of the poster childs of innovative management. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and and it's not a new company. It's a company which is 60, 70 years old, and it started off that that W.L. Gore came from Dupont. Mm-hmm. He was an engineer um, and didn't feel that engineers could be that creative as they could be at Dupont, so he started his own company, and he wanted to be a place where engineers could be engineers. <laughs> so he started a, a management system which was to try and make sure that people could do what they do. Um, and they've got an interesting system of onboarding people where they have a, let's say, a mentor who takes mm-hmm. someone in, find a team that you want to contribute to, once you find your teams, you make commitments, and those commitments are sacred. So it's similar to finding your role or what are you going to be contributing to teams. might be multiple teams that they're contributing to. But once they got that, they, they, they make that certain, and those people are then know what they're contributing because they said, I'm going to contribute this. And the team accepts them or says, sorry, we're not open for new people. So there's different things there with the W.O. Gore. won't go into the entire system uh, but they figured out similar things to holacracy of putting people in their authority that they know what the rules of the game are. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was very interesting in holacracy that it's clear what the rules of the game are. In a normal organization that's, let's say, hierarchical, the only rules of the game are, in general, you ask your boss. So there are different things I we could you know, continue, I think I'm intrigued to go to this boss topic. Mm-hmm. So the leadership topic. Mm. Okay. Well, um, boss, is a leader a boss? Well, you might have someone that's hierarchically done and they might, um, no one might want to follow them. Do you know Derek Sievers? Sievers? No. All right. There's this really interesting little uh, video clip that he's got, uh, which is showing the value of follower, followership. Is it the, the dancing video? The dancing guy. I, yeah. don't, I know. I, yeah. I didn't know the yeah. name, but okay. I, yeah. yeah, it's a very it's a cool yeah. video. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, you know what? There's one person who's the, who's the nut who's dancing by themselves. <laughs> the first person who's, who's gutsy enough to join them is yeah. like, okay, it shows everyone else the way. Yeah. So, you know. And the rest, the, everyone yeah. is dancing, right? Sure. Like. Yeah, indeed. And everyone Crazy. then decides, oh my goodness, uh, I if join. I don't join... <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm a loser. Yeah. <laughs> going to miss out. So what I like about that is that mm. leadership, well, without people following and without people having the guts to follow, a leader is just an idiot dancing by themselves. <laughs> yeah. um, so Obviously. you know, someone who proclaims themselves the leader without anybody willing to follow them is not a leader. So the boss is the boss of leader. Well, often in a certain organizations, no one has a choice but mm. to listen to the boss. That doesn't mean that they're the leader. Um, I'll, I'll go to the W.L. Gore case again for how they deal with leadership. Interesting, in the teams there, they basically everyone has the title associate on their, their card. Pretty much everyone's an associate. Mm-hmm. So everyone who joins W.L. Gore is an associate. They also have profit sharing schemes to make sure that people and, and, and stock options. But leadership there is achieved by if someone calls meetings or things and people regularly show up and they decide to follow that person, that person after a while can call themselves a leader. How do they decide? How is that visible? By showing up to the meeting or by something else? People will follow the lead. 
And if that's proven after time, that person might, might is allowed to then put leader on their business card. It's associate leader? No, no, it's just, it's leader. just leader. It's just associate. That, well, they can say leader. But that's how leadership there comes. When people recognize, hey, that person's got good ideas mm. or really takes care of people or manages to get the, the resource together. Yes, I'll go with you and I'll, and I'll mm. support that. That's how leadership gets done there. Conversely, if that person starts to fail and people stop gravitating to them, they lose the leadership position. Mm. So, leadership. And your other part of the question was management. Was management, yeah. I normally think of it as uh, administration versus management. And for me, management is maybe synonymous with what most people call leadership. So that is the ability to manage people rather than processes. But if we talk, if we use a normal one, management is potentially the management of processes. So finance processes, marketing processes, human resource processes. You know, business administration has made everything into a depersonalized process, mm -hmm. be able to measure it and account for it. Uh, so that leaves leadership. And do we teach leadership in business administration programs? Not really. Can it be taught? Another question. Well, it depends on what you teach. If you expose people to the mindset of agility and other things like that, and other ways of approaching people, uh, you, are you familiar with the theory X and theory Y? Yeah, I've just um, talked to someone recently about it. But maybe so, you can recall it from your yeah. perspective for listeners um, that don't know it. Yeah, okay. Theory X, uh, this was, oh, um, the, the name is escaping me at the moment, but from the 1960s already. So a lot of this thinking is not new. It even goes back to the 1920s already, the earlier stuff. Theory X is that uh, employees are lazy and can only be incentivized by external mm. measures like money. Theory Y says that uh, employees or people are intrinsically motivated and will do things that they uh, will, will, will contribute to where passions lies. Now, most of management so far has been, or business administration has been based on Theory X. Not intentionally, it's just happened that way. So if you, I do think that it is possible to teach management or leadership, not that everyone needs to be a leader, but expose people to the, the ideas of agility, the theory why, and viewing people in that way, which means also coming back to the holacracy, people as a prophet, which as we go from the knowledge age into the creative age um, is more important because it's really the resources uh, are in the people and their creativity. And if you keep seeing them as theory X and as a cost, you're not going to get the creativity out of people. So what to do then? Well, that's... Uh, it's time, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> thinking about major management innovation, which is not something that a lot of companies are thinking about. Are your students? Uh, we do uh, expose them to that in, in bringing out, out these things and these, these shifts and, and showing them that for organizations in the future to survive and the people within them to help them, the way people are viewed within an organization needs to change. Um, and most of our students don't want to be viewed as Theory X anyway. They would love to be dealt with as Theory Y, but that means that they've also got to treat other people in that way and bring those thoughts in. But we also then expose them to the different methodologies from Holacracy to, to uh, W.L. Gore and other companies that have these kind of things to think about, well, there's different ways to manage an organization. Maybe just a sidestep. I'm always amazed at a lot of startups 
that they start with this real resources and we're agile. Mm. And then because they don't actually give it much thought as they scale up, they basically, as they scale up, they go into a hierarchical, yes. hierarchical organization. Yeah. And then suddenly they wonder why are they, what, what, where they lost it. As they're innovating, as they're scaling up, I believe that companies should be paying as much attention to the management, how we lead the organization, how do we structure the organization, as they do to scaling up their market and their product. And that fails. Bigger organizations now, like ING, are really thinking about, gosh, our old model of operating isn't really going to match what's required. And they're making shifts. So there are organizations that are saying yes. A lot of organizations did it like W. Gore from the moment they started. Because the entrepreneur, the person who started, had an itch that they wanted to scratch. I think for a lot of large organizations, it's going to be very, very tough. Without real commitment from the C-suite. Um, yeah, I mean, we are in the middle of it. So I'm, I'm curious what, what is going to happen. Um, when we talk about innovation, I'm curious about the sentence, does structure really kills innovation? Um, we talked about structure, processes. What, what, first of all, what, what, is, what is your understanding of structure? I think it's, it's a word we use a lot like, <laughs> and I, I want to fill it for myself. Yeah. Um, how okay. do you... Yeah. Well, everything needs a structure. Holacracy is a structure as well. W.O. Gore is not structureless. When people talk about flat organizations, it doesn't mean that there's no structure. It's not, it's not a pool of water. I think sometimes it's mistaken, you know? Yes. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, they okay, say, no, structures we'll, like something. No, no, we don't do structure. We'll, no, we'll, structures we'll get out all the structure. Yeah. Lean startup as a process is a highly structured process. Mm -hmm. Design thinking is also a structured process. It's just iterative, not a project plan. We start here, we invest in here, and out, output X. So those things are structures. When we're talking about the other structures, however, financial budgeting. Mm -hmm. That's a structure as well. How do we structure managing our finances? And if you use the same ways that you invest in your normal marketing for existing products and you try and apply that to innovation of new products, that generally seems to kill innovation because either those things don't need the budget because they prove themselves to be non-viable, new ideas, new businesses, or other ones need more to fund, but they've only been told, no, no, your, your budget is that much, sorry, if you already use that money up, wait until next year. So those kind of structures do apparently kill innovation in large organizations. There's other structures that kill all things as well. Incentives, career incentives. If you're going to a large organization and you're middle management, what's your career path? Um, your career path is probably just making sure you hit your return on investment on everything and go up, failing, improving that a new business idea is not viable. It's not a good way to go up the management ladder in most organizations because that's failure so those structures of how do you actually put a career path that people can have a safe and good career path also through that also kills innovation and there's multiple things of this um, so there are a lot of structures that kill innovation but having the right structures which there's plenty of proof of you know and different varieties from W.O. Gore's method of going through this to lean startup to design thinking and other kinds of methodologies, those are structures which help. Uh, Semco, uh, a Brazilian company, yeah. is really interesting in that sense. The, uh, the, the CEO, or the former CEO uh, now, uh, Ricardo Semler, inherited the company or was, took it over from his father when it was still relatively small. 
Um, but he was in the beginning a control freak, apparently. He writes this in his own book, so I'm, I'm paraphrasing him. And at one point, he collapsed on, on, on a factory floor when doing a tour. And he went to the doctor and he said, okay, you know, so, so controlling everything and trying to release it that that wasn't going to work. So he started to think about, along with a couple of his higher placed colleagues that, that agreed with him, um, about how can we push responsibility down to the front lines where it's most, where they can make the best decisions. And he's taken about 20, 30 years to gradually figure out things along the way, what worked, what didn't work. And they took detours, they tried things, they said, oh, that's, that's a disaster, let's, let's back up. But they had the courage and the long breath to do it. He also got rid of apparently a couple of the people from his father's C-suite who didn't agree with him that that was a good way to go. So he said, okay, this is what I want to do. You don't agree, you're out. And then he went trying out. Now, he didn't adopt anything. He just thought, okay, well, what's the thing that we can do to give or give away control? I, I have this uh, question I asked you uh, already before with the, or you asked it. I mm. asked about okay. your favorite topic and mm. you asked me what would your TEDx talk mm. would be about. Yeah. And you mm. mentioned, um, do I pronounce it rightly? Mer oh, meritocracy. Meritocracy. Mm. Meritocracy is simply, um, actually, I'm going to take a little detour. Um, in the very first points when modern management was being invented, early, late 19, 1800s, early 1920s, there were three main people that published certain things. There was um, an American who uh, did the principles of scientific management, which basically said, um, observe people in their work, uh, figure out what's inefficient, standardize it, and teach everyone how to do it in a standard way, which was the start of the command and control management style. It got so bad that they sometimes says that there are quotes that say the average laborer is as phlegmatic as an ox, which means the management, there was a management elite and there was the laborers and the managers were there to make sure that people did things in the most efficient way. Mm. There was Henry Fayol in, uh, in France uh, working on certain things in, in management and there was Max Weber in Germany, but actually working less on business management and more on the bureaucracy, which he meant as a, as a good word in government, which got rid of nepotism and other things. Um, and one of those, uh, why I brought this up, is Max Weber's idea of a good bureaucracy, which did not have the connotation that we have a bureaucracy now, was a professionally run organization. And one of the things that nepotism was, was not meritocratic. It was getting the job because you're the, the, the friend or the, the family of. Meritocracy was there, making sure that you got the job because you had the most merit. You were the best qualified. And for a properly, professionally run organization, government for him, it was essential to make sure that the best qualified people were there. So meritocracy, why I find that such an important question, again, in the, in the case of W.O. Gore, with their leadership. Those people who are, have the merit and who are recognized by their peers to be leaders rise, not because someone decided you got the job. Even if they interviewed for it, people will respond to people. So through your merits, you get recognized. This might be a bit of a hot topic, but the question these days of equal pay is also a question of meritocracy. Yeah. Um, there's undoubtedly that for the same amount of experience for the same work, people should get paid the, the same, regardless of which chromosome they were born with. There's no doubt about that.
But then we come to the merit and is equal pay just because you're uh, different genders, the same thing. There's now a uh, reporter from the BBC who is suing the BBC because she says for the same work, she was not paid the same as a male colleague. This is maybe a vast digression. But you could say, okay, so you're both presenters, but do you bring in the same amount of, um, same amount of viewers? That might be a differentiation that might explain rather than your gender for, for anything. But meritocracy is for merit, for demonstrated value, you get recognized. That's what I find important. And for a flat organization, I think that is essential for the self-steering, whatever else. A meritocracy, the idea of a meritocracy and agility, I find one of the core centers that people are enabled to follow those people who they feel most capable of leading or progressing in, in the right way. So that is for me why meritocracy is such a fundamental idea behind agility. Thank you. I'm here in the Netherlands because I thought, okay, what they do here, it seems quite progressive. I want to dig my nose into it and get to know more. That's why I'm doing this uh, interviews and meeting people, learning, also my learning. And um, I came across the Rhineland model. Uh, mm -hmm. And some, some people here told me about this in terms of explanation of the difference between um, the Dutch way of working and yeah. the German way of working. And you also said something about um, the military, yeah. which is mm -hmm. super interesting. And yeah. maybe you can help me with my research question okay. yeah. <laughs> to, to maybe prove it a bit more scientifically, my gut feeling. Um, what might be the difference between... Um, Yeah, these two countries in terms of working model structure or way of working. Um, I can't say definitively on this, <laughs> but okay, the Rheinland model is comes from an idea of polder. So basically, all polderen. Ah, okay. Right. A whole bunch of stakeholders come together to hash things out and come to a best case, you know, something that helps everyone. I believe that that is the Reinhardt model that's being referred to. So that means uh, people come together to work it out so that all the stakeholders involved will have the best that you can make by pooling everything that is needed. Consent? Uh, not so much consent and not consensus. It's not you know, consensus. And sometimes we can, we, we consensus on the lowest common denominator. No, the, 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 the Reinhardt model is meant to be um, getting everyone involved to come out with the best possible solution. Now I'm going to go out on a limb. I was, uh, uh, a year or two ago, I was doing some consulting for Dekra. Uh, yeah, no, Dekra. They're a German company uh, which had expanded quite rapidly, taking over similar companies all over the world. But I was talking to one of the Dutch managers here whose company, whose company where he had worked at had been taken over by Dekra. And uh, he had gone to the head offices of Deka. Now here in the Netherlands, he was very used to, everyone comes in on jeans, wears a shirt, calls each other by the first names. And for him, he had never worked outside the Netherlands, never worked in another anything that's in a, Dutch, in a Dutch culture. And he was very surprised that he had to call everyone Herr this and Frau that. That was very formal. Mm. He had to be in a proper suit, which is like, oh my goodness, a proper suit, and I feel weird. <laughs> Now, this is what the limb. Maybe the Dutch attitude is that, that no one is really special. 
uh, you know, and no one has is, is more important than anyone else. That everyone's opinion, you can give your opinion, which is sometimes a problem, is different to the to the German one, which we respect hierarchy and you know, up and down. Maybe that's something that's if you say if if your insights are that the Netherlands does seem to be more progressive than this, maybe it's simply from the fact that there is this cultural norm almost here that anybody can give their opinion on anything. And it depends on certain people how free they feel in that. But a lot of Dutch people feel pretty free to comment on anything <laughs> that they want and not respect that mm. you're the boss, therefore, which is, which is, I think, hell for a lot of bosses in, in the Netherlands, um, which might be different in, in Germany where people might not openly criticize their bosses. Mm. So is that helping you with your thesis <laughs> question yeah. thesis question yeah. Yeah. maybe for you from your from your tour here and your 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 vocation does it seem to you better that it is really pro more progressive or is it just little islands here that seem to be progressive i mean i've been here you know addressing the people that I found and I researched working progressive, so I think I'm yeah. <laughs> blind, how do you say, narrowed down to speak to very progressive um, organizations and inspiring people. Um, and I think, therefore, it's about experiencing. I, I couldn't tell because I haven't worked here. So um, I don't know. would be cool to um, yeah, get the chance to enter a system and yeah experience it myself to see how do they work how does it feel to be addressed by um i mean where i worked in, in the startup field we don't call each other hell or, <laughs> more informal and that's also how i like to work um but i felt in in approaching the people i i really felt um welcomed and valued in in my curiosity and in, in the approach um and that was yeah i really liked that and the openness yeah. and yeah it felt a bit more easygoing in a way i don't know it's just all right yeah. some observations but, uh, cool. yeah. so i think we're going to end with this um good smile oh yeah yeah <laughs> and um i'm utterly impressed by by your knowledge and thank you so much for sharing so much all right yeah <laughs> 